me in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Titled this uh, particular sermon, this exposition, uh, Two Great Appearings. And the reason I have done that is because uh, in this text, that's what we have before us. In fact, the, the language and the vocabulary presents, uh, presents two great appearings. The appearing of one man, the man of lawlessness, and a subsequent greater appearing, the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's important that we understand these two appearings in relation to one another because it will help us to know what to look for and what to expect with respect to the coming of our Lord. Well, if you found your place in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, let me read from verse 1 through 12, and would you follow along with me as I read? Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth, and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refused to love the truth and to be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Father in heaven, as we come to your word this evening, we pray that you would give us light and understanding. Lord, may we not be fearful as we contemplate these future things, as we contemplate the challenge and the struggle that stands before your people on a day that we don't know. But may we be encouraged, Lord. May we be, as the apostle wrote to this early church, not quickly shaken or alarmed, but rather encouraged by the thought that though dark days lie ahead for your people, nevertheless, a bright eternity lies beyond that. For your Son will come from heaven. We trust in this and we believe in this as our blessed hope. will gather us to himself. We look forward to that day, Lord. We pray that you would enable us, as we receive your word tonight, to set our hope more firmly on the coming of our Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we think about current events, it's easy to get caught up in speculations about the future, about what God may be doing in the world, about what may be on the horizon for us. And uh, that's certainly very true right now. As we think about the news reports that come out of the Middle East and come out of uh, the nation of Israel today, we naturally wonder, how does this fit into God's final plan? 
How does this fit into what we should expect with respect to the coming of our Lord? This kind of exercise is something that is not new in history. Christians have contemplated these things many times throughout uh, the 2,000 years that have passed since Christ died and rose and ascended to heaven. Nevertheless, with each passing year, we continue to recognize and see that those things which must take place have not yet taken place. And so we still look and we wonder. We can get caught up in these things that go on around us and wonder, perhaps this is a sign of things to come. I want to suggest to you tonight that sometimes it's very easy for our imaginations, along with the newspapers, to uh, run away. And uh, we get caught up, uh, we, we, we get caught off guard by a great number of what you might call a red herring. In, a, in, in fictional writing, a red herring is, is something that's meant to distract you if you're reading a detective novel or something, something to distract you from what is, uh, uh, what's really happening behind the scenes in that particular uh, genre of fiction. And in the same way, the things that happen in our day, um, they can be like that. They can function like red herrings. I, I sometimes suggest to people that if we lived in the year 1914, uh, just at the outbreak of World War I, or in 1939 at the outbreak of World War II, it would be very easy to be convinced that this must be the end. This must be those final days that we look forward to. What we find in the text uh, that we've read right now is that the Thessalonians were caught up in something similar, that they had been distracted, if you will, and then unsettled by some kind of false teaching or misunderstood teaching that crept into their church and persuaded at least some that the day of the Lord had already come. And Paul wrote to settle them, to calm their hearts, to quiet their spirits, and to encourage them to hold fast in the hope of that day. And he didn't do it by laying out a very complex set of events. He did not do it by highlighting 10 or 12 or some 20 different things that must take place. Rather, he focused on two single things that must happen before the coming of Christ. Look at the very first verse. Notice that he writes, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. Now here at the very outset of this text, Paul is calling to our remembrance some things that he wrote about in 1 Thessalonians. We look back just across the page to 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. And we see that here Paul writes about the coming of our Lord and about our being gathered to him. And we saw in that text as we looked through it that when Christ comes, the dead in Christ will be raised. And then together with those dead and those believers who remain to the day of his coming, we will all be caught up. We will be gathered to our Lord. That's what Paul is writing about the coming of our Lord, and our being gathered together to him. But notice that at the end of verse 2, he speaks about uh, those who have, uh, who have suggested to this early church that the day of the Lord has come. And you look over again to 1 Thessalonians 4, and you see, excuse me, in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, that after Paul spoke about the coming of the Lord, he spoke about the day of the Lord. And I suggested to you when we were in 1 Thessalonians that these two events are not separate events, but one event, that all, all this one complex of events that happens all together. Of course, there are many in, uh, who, who believe that uh, the day of the Lord is some uh, period of time after 
his initial coming to rapture the church. And uh, as I said then, and I say again, it is a perfectly valid and uh, reasonable position to hold, and some of you do hold that, and I don't uh, bind your conscience to change your mind on that matter. It's not my position, as I, as I made clear then. I believe that the rapture happens along with the resurrection of the believers, along with the coming of the Lord in a visible way where the whole world will see it, and that brings also the judgment of those who are not found in Christ on that day. In other words, if you want a, a subtitle to put that, uh, to, to understand that view, it's the view of a post-tribulation rapture. That's the view that I hold and the way that I understand First Thessalonians. And I think that this text supports that idea. I don't, um, I don't suggest that it's a knock-down, drag-it-out uh, uh, proof that can't be refuted. But here, look at what Paul is speaking about. He's speaking concerning the coming of our Lord and our being gathered to him and refuting the idea that the day of the Lord has already come. And then he says in verse 3, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until certain things take place. So it seems in Paul's understanding and the way he's presenting it to the Thessalonians is that the day of the Lord, the gathering of his people, and the visible coming of our Lord is all one complex of events that occurs at the same time. In any case, this is the subject matter about which Paul writes. And what we see is that the Thessalonians have been misled. In some way, Paul doesn't go into great detail about how they've been misled. But you can see that they've been shaken in their minds. They've, been, they've become alarmed by something that they've heard. And Paul doesn't want them to think this way. He says, I don't want you to be quickly shaken or in mind or alarmed either by, and he lists a number of, another number of uh, uh, ways in which they might be alarmed, either by a spirit, which is the idea of uh, uh, some kind of prophetic utterance that might have been given to the early church. A spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, se seeming to suggest a plagiarized letter that claims to be from Paul. We'll see at the very end of Second Thessalonians and Chapter 3, verse 17, how Paul gives a very clear way of indicating that this letter that he's writing is authentic. In verse 17 of that chapter, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. It seems that he's taken the pen from his secretary who's writing for him, and he's write, written in his own handwriting. And he says, this is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. So he gives this early church a way to know this is an authentic Pauline letter. So perhaps that suggests as well, along with this verse, that someone has forged a letter or has, has sent a letter claiming it's from Paul or one of the other apostles to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. The idea being, you've missed it. It passed you by. Paul does not want them to succumb to this, even if we might say an angel from heaven said these words. Now this is an important point for all of us. It has an important point of application that we need to hear the apostles, when they went preaching the gospel, proclaimed the message they received from Christ. They proclaimed the testimony that they had received. And the way in which people were to remain steadfast, the way in which they called the churches to persevere in the faith they had received, was to evaluate everything according to or against the testimony they had received when the gospel first came to them from Paul or one of the other apostles. If you flip back with me to 1 Corinthians 15 briefly, you'll see this same idea. There Paul writes about the same series of events as he looks forward in that great chapter about the resurrection to the 
coming of Christ and the resurrection of his people. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 1, we read, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. There, Paul will go on in the rest of that chapter to refute a false teaching that crept into the church in Corinth. Namely, the idea that there is no resurrection. There is no future resurrection for God's people. Paul wanted to refute that particular error, which was present in Corinth. And he did it by calling them their attention to and reminding them of those things that they had heard at first. Nothing new, nothing complicated, the simple gospel proclamation that Jesus came, Jesus lived a righteous and perfect life, he died for our sins, he was buried. On the third day he rose. He ascended to the Father's right hand. And he will return again to raise his people and to usher us into eternal life. That is our hope. That is what we believe. That is the gospel that the apostles preached at first. And any deviation from that gospel had to be challenged and had to be refuted. I'll give you one other example where Paul does this very thing again. But here focusing on a different error that crept in. In Galatia, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, listen to these words from Paul. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul could even say, could be, even be so bold to say that even if I come and I seek to amend the gospel that I preached at first, even if I come and I seek to change the message and say I had it wrong the first time around and so I'm going to give you something different, you're not to believe it, you're to reject it, you're to turn it aside. And we need to understand that, and we need to follow that same, uh, that same uh, uh, practice in our own lives as we think about any teaching that might be set before us. Now, it's very easy as Christians to, to treat what we heard at first as what we heard at first here in the 21st and 20th centuries when we were born and we were raised, and we have that tradition in which we were reared. But here, we're not talking about the tradition in which we might have been reared. We're talking about the tradition that was delivered from the apostles to the churches. This is why we prioritize expository preaching in our churches. It's not about what you heard in Sunday school when you were a child. It's about what Jesus passed on to his apostles, what he taught them, and what they delivered. Where do we find that? We find it in God's word. 
We find a consistent message in God's word. And that is the basis by which we here in the 21st century evaluate and test every, every, source, every sort of doctrine that might come before us. Does it conform to the word of God? That's what Paul is doing here in 2 Thessalonians. He's challenging the Thessalonians to do the same thing, to remember what they heard at first, to hold fast to what they heard at first, and to not be shaken or alarmed by people who come and contradict it in some way. In Corinth, people denied the resurrection. In Galatia, people denied the doctrine of justification by faith. Here in Thessalonica, people argued that the day of the Lord had already come and the Thessalonians had missed all of these things, all of these things for which they hoped. Whatever it might be, if it does not conform to that basic gospel that we can summarize in terms of Christ's coming as a man to die for our sins, his rising, his ascension to heaven, and his future return, it's to be rejected and condemned. Now, when we think about how we should think about how easy it is to be led astray, particularly with, with respect to the coming of Christ, for those who have not uh, spent much time in terms of being instructed in God's word. I, I think of a, uh, a time in my life not so long ago when I was living in Virginia, and a couple men came up to me, and they were clearly evangelists. They had Bibles in their hands, and they wanted to share with me about their faith. And their hook line to try and capture me was to uh, suggest to me that... Um, that a, a true church would keep the Sabbath on Saturday, and if I wasn't part of such a church, I should join with them. Which, if someone is, is uh, not well instructed in Scripture, it's pretty easy to lead someone astray by simply pointing them to the Ten Commandments and then, suggest, and then showing them that the seventh day, being Saturday, is the day that was uh, the Sabbath in the Old Covenant. And if one does not understand the relationship between the Old and New Covenant, the relationship between the Law and the Gospel, that could be very, very uh, confusing and, and very easy for someone to be led astray by that kind of hook line. But what they, as I dialogued with these men, what I found out was that there was a lot more beneath the surface. That was the tip of the iceberg, and it wasn't just a matter of a dispute about the Sabbath and when one should rest, but rather that they were part of a group called the World Mission Society Church of God. A church, this, this group, not really a church, but a cult, was founded in 1964 by a Korean man named An Sang Hong. That after his death, his disciples claimed that he was the second coming of Jesus Christ. And they introduced a woman who's still alive today and quite wealthy in Korea, about 79 years old. Her name is uh, Zhang Gilja, and they called her the Godmother. And you, could, you can hear that, and I started sounding, well, this is quite strange. I, I know quite uh, uh, certainly this is not in Scripture. And I found, after doing a little research, that this was a cult. Uh, that had developed and, and had uh, gained quite a following in that area of Virginia where I lived. And as it happened, a few days later, I saw two more men who were traveling and they were evangelizing, and they came up to me to share the same uh, idea, and I was a bit more prepared at that moment, and I asked the men to, to turn in their Bibles. They had a normal translation, the New International Version, to Matthew 24. And let me ask you to turn there with me right now to Matthew 24. And there was one... One of the men was more seasoned in their, in their beliefs, and the other man seemed like he was pretty new and kind of in training. And I asked them if we could look at Matthew chapter 24, particularly in verses 23 through 28, because here's why. They were trying to convince me that the Lord Jesus had had a secret coming, a secret coming which was not known to the whole wide world, but was rather secret 
and yet it was real, and they were sure that I would recognize the idea of a secret coming of Christ. And so we looked at Matthew chapter 24, 23, and following, and there Jesus says in the Olivet Discourse, then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Without going into all the details of that text, it's quite clear that the coming of Christ, the coming of the Son of Man, will be visible to all from east to west, the same way that lightning can be seen all across the sky. And he told us that we are not to listen to people when they speak of a secret coming, saying, see, he's here in the wilderness, or here he's in an inner room. And I said to one of those men at that moment, does it disturb you at all that Jesus seems to be speaking about your religion right here 2,000 years ago? Well, the younger man was clearly caught off guard. The uh, one who was more seasoned shut down the conversation and they moved on. The point that I'm making in all of that is to say that it's very easy for people to be led astray by false teaching concerning the coming of Christ if they're ignorant of what God has shown us in Scripture. And we don't need to know every single detail whatsoever, but we do want to have the broad picture, that picture that can be summarized very clearly and very simply the way Paul summarized it in 1 Corinthians 15 or the way we've seen it summarized in First and Second Thessalonians, the way that we see it summarized in Paul's letter to the Galatians, or, quite frankly, the way that we summarize it in something like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. We have a very clear summary of Christian teaching that culminates with a visible manifestation of our Lord from heaven. And we just need to know that and have that basic, what we could call the whole counsel of Scripture, that basic summary in our mind and know a bit about where that arises from Scripture. And it will be a strong guard for us against some of these wild and crazy cults that actually prove quite uh, effective at leading many astray. We don't want to be led astray. And so we want to have a clear picture, of uh, a, a clear and simple picture of what we're to expect in light of what Christ has already done and what he's promised to do. I think that as we look at 2 Thessalonians 2, it does give us a picture like that, particularly with respect to the coming of our Lord. Paul is going to set the coming of Christ in relation to two great events. Look at verse 3 with me. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come. Speaking about the day of the Lord and the day of Christ's appearing, that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed. These are the two great events that must precede the coming of Christ, the rebellion and the revelation of the man of lawlessness. And the way that Paul presents these, it seems uh, best to understand that these two things happen together, that they are intimate, re intimately related. Paul does not say a great deal about this rebellion. We'll, we'll see that he outlines a little bit of its character later on. But what he does say is that there will be something called the rebellion. Now, the Greek word there, I, I do want to give you the Greek word, uh, is apostasia, and you can hear that in the word in our cognate apostasy. We use the word apostasy to refer to a falling away from the faith. 
when someone who once professed faith in Christ then abandons their faith. Some have argued that this uh, rebellion, it, it, it may be better rendered departure, and they've suggested that it's a reference to the rapture. I think that's not correct, and, and th here's a reason why. is Though it's possible to render the term as departure, and it's used as a, someone departing, for instance, to go down to Egypt, Mary and Joseph departing from their land to go to Egypt, that, that sense always has reference to uh, the place being left. But here, we are, uh, in the big picture, we're not, when we're talking about believers, the idea in, in view with believers is not about departing from something or someone, but gathering to someone. That's the way that Paul refers to that event of the rapture is one of ga being gathered to Christ. But here we're looking at rather an abandonment of Christ, people who are departing from him. Now, it, it could be that this term is uh, a term that is sometimes used to refer to a, uh, a, a kind of rebellion in society where people rebel against governments and they, and they, they, um, they start revolutions of sor sorts. And that's also possible. Uh, I might suggest to you that the two are not mutually exclusive, that what we are looking for and what we might expect to happen at some future date is both a rebellion against civil authorities, governmental authorities, in conjunction with a great departure of professing believers from the churches. I say professing believers because we know that when someone departs from the church and, and abandons that faith, as John has taught us in 1 John, those who went out from us were not really of us. They reveal who they really are in that act. Nevertheless, there are, there's such a thing as a person who professes faith in Christ, that person who receives the word with with joy and gladness, as we find in the parable of the sower, and yet, either because of the cares and concerns of the world or because of the trials and tribulations that come in the Christian life, they ultimately fall away or prove uh, unfruitful. And so, what we're probably looking at is that kind of thing, something uh, that will be uh, very apparent to those who remain in the church, those who remain uh, committed to Christ, that many, many people have turned from Christ and simultaneously rebelled against uh, the existing uh, world powers, the existing governments at that time. But Paul doesn't go into great detail. He simply cites that and says, that must come first. And I think the, the sense then that we should take from this is, if we should live to that day, we will recognize it when we see it. We will know it when we see it. The second thing that seems to come in conjunction with this is the revelation of a particular man. He's described as the man of lawlessness, and he's said, it's said that he is to be revealed. That is, he, that he will be uh, made known in some respect. And we can think, uh, we're going to see in this text that there is a kind of mimicry, a kind of imi cheap imitation, where Satan and the man of lawlessness are imitating God and Christ in this cheap sort of way. And here we have a revelation of this man, who we know, we, we, we refer to as the Antichrist from 1 John. We have a revelation of this man, just like Jesus Christ himself was revealed when he was baptized by John and God spoke from heaven, and when he was transfigured on the mount and God again spoke from heaven. And in his whole course of his ministry, he was revealed. And so too, this man of lawlessness will be revealed. I take this also, just like the, uh, the, the, I said that the rebellion, I think we'll recognize it when we see it. I take this to be an indication that it will be quite clear to us who this man is when he comes, 
if we are here on that day. Look out how Paul continues to describe him in verse 3. He associates him with lawlessness, something we'll talk about further. But he also describes him as the son of destruction. This is an idiom. To say that someone is a son of anything in that time and place was to say that he's so associated with this quality that the only explanation is that his father is uh, destruction or his father is worthlessness. Or if you said you're a son of worthlessness, you're, you're saying you're such a worthless person, your dad must be worthlessness. It's just a joke and people understood it because sons are like their fathers and especially in that day, a son did what his father did. He reflected his father. And so this man is called the son of destruction. In some way, we'll see exactly what way later on, he is intimately associated with destruction. I take that to be his own personal destruction and the destruction of those who follow him. His own personal destruction and the destruction of those who follow him. So he's associated with lawlessness. He's associated with destruction. We also see that he's one who exalts himself. Look at in verse 4, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, this man is going to exalt himself in such a way that he will present himself as God. That's the final clause there. He will exalt himself over every so-called God. We can, we can imagine in Paul's context that the Thessalonians would have heard that and they would have thought of those pagan gods in the Roman world like Jupiter and Mars or in the Greek language in, of Zeus and, and um, Athena and others. And uh, in our own day, we can think of other false and so-called gods. We think of uh, the, in Islam, they worship Allah. And uh, in, in, um, other, in, in, Hindu, in, in Hindu religion or in the Buddhist religion, you have various gods and the whole pantheon of of different gods that they would worship, these so-called gods, not real gods. And yet this man of lawlessness will not just exalt himself against the one true God, but he will exalt himself against all gods, all so-called gods, I I say. That's how Paul renders it. And not just deities, but also objects of worship. Again, in their day, they would have thought of idols, but they would have also thought of places of worship. They would have had a temple in their city, and every other city would have had a temple as well. People would have offered incense to the emperor in Rome, and they would have gone to the various temples and offered sacrifices uh, to, to the god of war, to the god of the harvest, and so on and so forth, when they wanted to seek, um, seek uh, favor from that particular god in those situations. And here this man of lawlessness will exalt himself against whatever things and people that, other, that people in our day or his day, whatever they worship, he will exalt himself over them. Now, this next line, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, has, uh, it's a very difficult line because Paul is writing this letter prior to the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. And, of course, we know that the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. And so sometimes we take this as an indication that the temple at some point must be rebuilt. There's not, I, I, that I can think of, I cannot find in Scripture a specific, uh, very explicit statement that says that the temple must be rebuilt. But it seems to be inferred from texts like this and perhaps from Matthew 24 and uh, Daniel, uh, uh, Daniel as well. I want to suggest to you that that is a bit unclear. And let me take you back to Matthew 24 and point something out just about the grammar of this text. That word in, in 2 Thessalonians, so that, 
oftentimes in grammar, it, it will indicate the result of something or the, 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 a thing that, will, uh, that he will do, as, uh, in this case, the thing of the man lawlessness will do because he exalts himself against every so-called God and object of worship. So the idea being so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, an indication that he will even go to the point of sitting in the temple, which, of course, is destroyed and would have to be rebuilt if it's the Jerusalem temple for that to take place. But I want to show you that it's not necessarily going to indicate a necessary result, but more rather the the sense of exaltation. Here's a a verse. We read it already, and I'll read it again in Matthew 24, 24. And I read this to you because the grammatical structure, the grammatical construction is identical. He says in this, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. There, the, 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 the translation is not quite identical, but I, I, I submit to you that the grammatical structure in the Greek is the same, that there's an indication of something that would be achieved uh, that would result from the appearance of these false Christs, that, they, that the extent of their deception, the extent of their deceptiveness, would even lead astray the elect, and yet Jesus acknowledges that that's not actually a possibility, that the elect are not going to be led astray. But rather what he's indicating is the extent of their deceptiveness. And so in the same way, I suggest to you the possibility. I don't make this claim as though it's a definitive interpretation, but a possible interpretation. That it is possible that Paul is not uh, not trying to say that the man of lawlessness must sit in a renewed and rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, but rather he's saying the degree to which he will exalt himself over every so-called God and object of worship. There's no limit to that. He'll go even so far as to exalt himself over and against the one true God. And he then seems to explain that statement then in the next clause that concludes that verse, proclaiming himself to be God. So I don't submit to you that there will or will not be a renewed temple. I say to you this, is that when we look for what will come before the coming of Christ, We ought not to have a checklist that is a mile long that includes things like the rebuilding of a temple in Jerusalem and so on and so forth, but rather look at these two basic things that Paul sets before our eyes, a rebellion, an apostasy that I've described, and the appearance of a man of lawlessness. And in both cases, I submit to you that you'll know it when you see it. You'll know it not because the temple gets rebuilt or does or does not get rebuilt, although if it does and he takes his seat in that, that would be a dead ringer, but Because there is a man who exalts himself against every God and even claims that he himself is God and the whole world is going after him, that would be a clear indication that our redemption, brothers and sisters in Christ, is very near. It shouldn't worry us and discourage us. I know that those days are dark that this portends, but it's a signification that the coming of the Lord is very, very near. And all these things could happen in very short order in our own day. Paul goes on to say in verse 5, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Paul had already spoken to them about these things, so that what he had said earlier about not accepting a new teaching that contradicted what they had received uh, from him already, it's, he's reinforcing that prior teaching. He'd already told them about these things. This is not new information to them, even if it might be new information to us. 
And he goes on to say that you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. That's a very confusing passage in verse 6 and 7. What we have is a restraint and a restrainer, a force or a power and a person. There's a shift in the grammar in the, in the Greek from uh, uh, neuter to a masculine noun when he speaks about the restrainer that indicates that Paul has in view both a restraining force or restraining power and one who restrains the man of lawlessness. And this has uh, raised a number of interpretations and, and people have wondered what is it exactly that Paul had in mind. The Thessalonians knew. He said, you know what is restraining him. But we weren't there. And we're not Thessalonians. And so we sometimes wish Paul had not had previously told them these things. Nevertheless, it is enigmatic. I don't think that we should insist upon a definitive answer. But let me tell you some of the answers that have been proposed concerning the restraint and the restrainer. Some have suggested that the church is the restrainer. And in this case, then the Holy Spirit would be the personal restrainer through the church. Others in a similar way have suggested that the preaching of the gospel and Paul's mission to the Gentiles had to be completed. That that was the restraint, if you will. And still then, the Paul himself or the Holy Spirit through Paul would be the one who is restraining. These are possibilities. I, I, I don't think that, that, that it's the correct answer. And the reason I don't think it's the correct answer is because the text actually doesn't seem to suggest that that's the power at work. That, it, that In this case, it doesn't seem to suggest that the Holy Spirit is the, is the one who is directly uh, causing this man to come about and keeping him at bay. Rather, I suggest to you that the restraining power and the restrainer is one who is actually aligned in his purposes with the man of lawlessness. So that the idea is not one of uh, uh, one who is uh, opposing the man of lawlessness from coming, but one who is keeping him at bay until the time when he desires to bring him forth. This is the, uh, this is the, the, the reason for this idea, that when we look at the text, we see that ultimately in verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity, the working of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. And we see earlier in this text, in verse 7, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. That same language of working, working by the power of Satan, the working of the mystery of lawlessness. In other words, the picture that Paul is painting is one where the mystery of lawlessness, the lawlessness in our world, is at work in a kind of hidden way. There's an undercurrent of lawlessness that animates all opposition to God. But there is a day coming when that will be embodied in a single individual, a man of lawlessness. And that day is not yet. I mentioned earlier that there's a kind of mimicry going on, a kind of cheap imitation, where Satan is as if he were imitating the one true God. And it's as if he himself has appointed his day. Now, I'll, I'll show you in a moment that all of this falls under the full and complete sovereignty of, our, of the one true God. Nevertheless, Satan, in his, in his uh, pride and his arrogance, is acting as though he were God and he has appointed a day for the revelation of his man, of his antichrist. I think that's what's going on there. But we ought not to insist on a particular certainty 
uh, a particular certain interpretation. Many faithful interpreters have held different views on this. So I simply want to leave you with this point. There is a restraint and there is a restrainer. That much is very clear from the text. The Thessalonians knew all about it. We don't know as much about it. But we at least know there is a restraint and a restrainer. And that restrainer will continue to restrain the man of lawlessness until the designated time so that he may be revealed in his time. But he already works. The mystery, that is, of lawlessness already is working. Only when the restraint and the restrainer is out of the way, then he will come. In verse 8, and the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. This verse here mirrors what we saw earlier in the initial description of the man of lawlessness. We look again back to verse 3. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Now we, we're reminded again of the revelation of this lawless one. Verse 8, then the lawless one will be revealed, and again of his destruction, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth, and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. It's one thing that wasn't in Paul's description of the day of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians 5, that the destruction, that the, the, the judgment that comes upon all unbelievers will come upon this particular lawless one on that day. Jesus will destroy him and demonstrate his utter and complete power even over this mighty and lawless one. There is a restrainer. There's a restraining force. There's a mystery of lawlessness that is at work presently. There is one who will come who will embody lawlessness some future day. Nevertheless, the lawless one and that lawless power will not prevail against our Lord. This should encourage us. This should encourage us to hold firm as we look forward to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now there's a few things we need to say before we close. We, we, we need to recognize that this man does come indeed by the power of Satan. And as I suggested that he is held back potentially by the power of Satan as well until the designated time. But we see also that when he is revealed... There are things that he, will for, that, that, will, that he will do that will help us to identify who this person is, again, if we are alive on that day. Look at verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. In Acts chapter 2, you can turn there with me or you can listen as I read. These words may be very familiar to you. In Acts chapter 2, when after the Spirit had been poured out at Pentecost, Peter stood up to preach and to say that these things were in accordance with that, well, that which was prophesied by the prophet Joel. And in Acts 2 verse 17, he, read from, or he cited from Joel, quoted from it, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Now listen to these words. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, and the great, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
Then Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you, you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. There are things I want to draw to your attention to from that text. Is first, God attested that Jesus was the Christ through the signs and wonders that he powerfully worked in him. And we see that same language of mighty deeds, mighty works, and signs and wonders and what Peter says about him, both in terms of what Joel prophesied concerning these coming days and what God did through Christ. And then we see that Christ came in that first coming according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And though lawless ones, lawless men, put him to death, that was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And God raised him up, again, according to his definitive plan and foreknowledge. Here we see that same kind of language concerning the man of lawlessness, that he works power or mighty works, we could say, signs and wonders by the power of Satan, but they are false. I don't think that necessarily means that they're tricks and they are, uh, they're, 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 they're like magic tricks that someone, an illusionist might perform, but rather that they falsely testify concerning him, that they're meant to lead people astray into thinking, here's the Christ, and yet they, the, the message that they affirm is a false message, that he's a pretender, he's a fake, but you see the imitation going on. You see the mimicry that Satan is working through him, this deception, with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. Not for those who are being saved, but for those who are perishing. Why? Because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Notice that in all of this, God continues to stand as the sovereign of the universe. All of this comes according to his definite plan, and he brings it an end, brings it to an end by his power. He is the one who ultimately sends a strong delusion through all of this, and yet he stands apart from it in such a way where he cannot be charged with any kind of sin or wrongdoing. We see examples of this kind of thing in the Old Testament, in the book of Job, for instance, where Satan comes and seeks to act against Job, and God permits Satan to act. Satan can do nothing except what God permits him to do. And so God stands sovereign over Job's suffering, and yet not in a way where God can be charged with any kind of wrongdoing. God stands sovereign here also over this delusion, over this deception that will come upon the earth. But we also need to recognize his justice in it all. Here we draw upon what we saw from the Gospel of Luke this morning. Remember how Jesus confronted that generation who had seen his signs, who had seen the wonderful things that he did. And as he confronted them, he challenged them not to be so obstinate, not to persist in such illogical unbelief, but to recognize him for who he is. And look at the contrast. They saw his signs. They could not deny his mighty works, but they said he works those things by the power of Satan. Now here comes one who actually works those signs by the power of Satan. It's been told beforehand. What will they do? 
Of course, those men from that generation, that time, are, are long gone. But people who are just like them, who loved wickedness, had pleasure in unrighteousness, and refused to believe the truth, what will they do? They will believe him. They will follow him. And it will be proof positive that their unbelief was not because the signs were not enough. Their unbelief started in a chain of events that began with loving unrighteousness. Their willful decision to pursue unrighteousness, their willful decision to hate the truth and to refuse to believe it. And so they will be deceived on that day. John Stott, in his commentary on this passage, helpfully describes it this way, and I want to read a lengthy paragraph for you because I think he says it so well. Stott writes this, It is of great importance to observe that the opposite of believing the truth is delighting in wickedness. This is because the truth has moral implications and makes moral demands. Evil, not error, is the root problem. The whole process is grimly logical. First, they delight in wickedness or make sinfulness their deliberate choice. Secondly, they refuse to believe and love the truth because it is impossible to love evil and truth simultaneously. Thirdly, Satan gets in and deceives them. Fourthly, God himself sends them a strong delusion, giving them over to the lie they have chosen. Fifthly, they are condemned and perish. This is extremely solemn teaching. It tells us that the downward slippery path begins with a love for evil and then leads successively to a rejection of truth, the deception of the devil, a judicial hardening by God, and final condemnation. The only way to be protected from being deceived is to love goodness and truth. These then are the dynamics, devilish and divine, which lie behind the final rebellion. So here what we see then is Paul's description of that apostasy, that rebellion. People will love the darkness, to use the language of John's gospel. People will love wickedness. People will love what is evil, and they will hate the truth. They will not fail to believe because the truth was not clear enough. It was not obvious enough, because God did not make himself manifestly evident in Christ. They will refuse to believe because they love their wickedness. And so, like Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, God will give them over. God will give them over. God will give them over again and again because they refuse to repent and they refuse to believe and they refuse to come. When he calls them through his prophets and through his word and through his apostles and through the preaching of the word to repent and believe the gospel and to receive his gracious gift, I want you to know that all of this is just. And what God is showing is the justice of his judgment. Yes, he is sovereign over every human heart. Yes, he sends a strong delusion. But he does not make anyone do that which he did not choose. Unless by his grace he chooses us and softens our heart and quickens us. To choose and believe in our Lord Jesus Christ. God's judgment is just. What Paul is laying out for us is the way in which that just judgment will unfold prior to the coming of Christ. 
There's one other thing I want to emphasize again that I've already, I've already pointed to, and that's the cheap imitation of Satan. As I mentioned, there are many ways in which Satan mimics and imitates what God has done in Christ. But one thing he cannot imitate, one thing he cannot duplicate is the victory. He cannot duplicate the victory. The Lord Jesus will indeed come. He will indeed gather his own to himself. And he will indeed destroy from before his presence every single enemy of God. There will be a time that will come, perhaps in our lifetime, perhaps not for a thousand years. But there will be a time when the deception will be great, when many will be deceived, when even the elect, even God's people, as we read from Matthew 24, if it were possible, would be led astray by this particular individual. But that's not possible, for God preserves his own. And I want you to see, because if we are to go through that day, or if we're simply to go through a lesser trial that is a prefigurement of that day, whatever we might go through, if we are to endure through it, it will be because our eyes are not fixed on what is immediately before us, but our eyes are fixed on the finish line. A finish line that Christ will bring to us as we endure waiting for it to come. That's our blessed hope, brothers and sisters in Christ. It's what we look forward to. Not to some way in which God will take us out of the trial that may come, but to God who is powerful to preserve his people through it. And so what ought we to do as we wait for that blessed day? What kind of people are we to be? A people who love the truth, and love righteousness as God has revealed it to us primarily in his son Jesus Christ who is not a man of lawlessness but is a man of righteousness the ultimate man of righteousness we look to him we trust in him we seek to live our lives in the way in which he called us to live following his example of loving sacrifice for one another and of complete and utter faith in our Lord Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us to persevere. We pray. As we think about that day, there are times as we look at the events that surround us that we wonder, is that day not very soon? And yet we know that there have been other times in history that have seemed to portend that day as well, and yet it's, they've passed without the coming of Christ. Help us not to be discouraged by this fact that uh, it has been 2,000 years. Help us not to be discouraged when people scoff and tap their watch and say, where is the promise of his coming? Help us not to be discouraged as we look at trials and we face various difficulties in our lives. Lord, help us to be a people who persevere in faith and hope and trust and love, abounding in good works, abounding in labors of love, steadfast in hope all, through this life. For we know that this is sure, whatever we may face, and whether we should go to captivity or go to, go to our deaths, or whether we should simply live out the balance of our days, we know that this is certain, that Christ will come again. Help us to believe it all our days. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.